Morning. As we're settling down, if you just turn to uh, Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles. And this morning we're going to continue our study of Romans 12. We'll be focusing on uh, verses 9 onwards, the uh, second part of the chapter, having looked at uh, the first nine verses last time. However, I want us to read the whole chapter up to and including chapter 13 verse 1 for reasons that hopefully will become obvious later. Before reading, though, I make no apology in reminding you that based on the internal evidence in the letter, the reason Paul wrote was to prevent the church at Rome separating into separate Jewish and Gentile factions. See, in some sections of the letter, Paul has directed his comments exclusively to the Jewish members of the body, while at other times he specifically addressed those of Gentile origin. But in chapters 12 through to 16, he addresses them all, making repeated appeals for unity within the body. Now, Paul spent the first 11 chapters making it abundantly clear that salvation is entirely due to the grace of God. No one deserves it. All regardless of ancestry and any perceived privilege that brings, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have been given over to disobedience so that God might have mercy upon all. So salvation is always only according to God's mercy. It is available only because God justifies the ungodly and he does so on the basis of faith. And God can only justifiably forgive sin because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ who shed his blood upon the cross to pay the price for the sin of mankind. And it's only on account of the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross that someone can be brought into right relationship with God and receive the Holy Spirit into their hearts and be adopted into God's family. And it's only in the light of all this, or as Paul states, in view of God's mercy, that believers can begin to comprehend what it means to belong to the church and understand their position within it. For we will only understand what it means to belong to the body of Christ when the Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts and brings about an inner transformation that results in the renewing of our minds. So let's read Romans 12, all the way to 13, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually 
members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honour giving preference to one another. Not lagging in in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, when we were reading through this section, did you notice the subtle change in perspective? You see, for much of the chapter, Paul's focus of attention concerned relationships and matters inside the church. However, towards the end of the chapter, the focus shifted to consideration of matters outside as well as in. For example, in verses 17 and 18, Paul's statements are directed to all men, not just those within the body. And by the time we get to chapter 13, verse 1, where he refers to the governing authorities, the focus has shifted to being primarily concerned with affairs outside the church. There's a profound lesson for us here. The way we behave within the body will affect the way we relate to people outside it. Discipleship takes place within the body. And it says we live in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that God trains us in righteousness. However, the lessons we learn and the character that develops in us within the body will have a consequential effect on how we interact with the world outside. And there are, two street, uh, there are two extremes that we need to be mindful to avoid. The first is to compartmentalise our lives so that our spiritual lives become totally separate from our everyday lives. We are not taught to be Sunday Christians, where we do our religious observance for a couple of hours per week 
and then get on with the rest of our lives living according to the world's standards. Our worship is to be 24-7, all day, every day. We are in full-time Christian service. However, that does not mean there is no distinction between life within the body and life outside in the outside world either. Relationships with people within the body should be closer, more intimate. We are family. We are people who have been adopted into God's family. Therefore, we should expect standards of morality and conduct to be higher within the body. And also, the way we respond to ungodly behaviour inside and outside the church will be different as well. As Paul taught the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. So as we study what Paul has written in chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, considering life within the body, we need to be mindful as to how this will affect our lives as we relate to the world outside. And last time when we studied the first half of the chapter, we concentrated on what it means to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells the hearts of all those who believe. Those who are being transformed will not be conformed to the world's standards. We will be taught to think differently. Our minds will be renewed. We will know instinctively that God has adopted us into his family and we will know from deep within the cry of our hearts, Abba, Father. And having been brought into right relationship with God, we will also begin to realise that the Christian life is lived out in mutually dependent relationships within Christ's body, the church. We will therefore learn not to think too highly of ourselves, but rather to come to understand that we are members of a body in which each member has a role to play and a function to perform. We will learn the importance of exercising the gifts that God has given us since they have been given for the benefit of all within the body. We'll also begin to realise that just as others depend on us to exercise the gifts given us, that we too are dependent on others to perform that role that God has given them according to the measure of faith given. And we will come to know through experience what it means to have been called into Christ's body, the church, where each member is mutually dependent on others since this is the only context in which genuine, loving relationships can form, grow and develop. And this is where we will begin today, by considering more fully the statement in verse 9, love must be without hypocrisy. The love that exists within the body must be without hidden agendas or motives. It must be without falsehood, or as the ESV renders verse 9, love must be genuine. Now, I find the uh, NIV rendering particularly interesting, where it says, love must be sincere. And you may well remember, at the end of last time, Tom gave us an insight into the origin of the word sincere. Some studies in etymology suggest that the original meaning of this word means without wax. And Tom explained how wax was often used to conceal cracks in pottery. Now, today, we... Uh, legitimately used wax uh, um, 
Furniture restorers legitimately lose, uh, use wax to hide scratches in wooden objects. However, in times past, broken pots were reconstructed without cementing the parts together properly, and wax was used to conceal the fact that the pot was really broken. So when the pot was used, it would fall apart when subjected to heat or stress. It was not only potters who would use wax in this way, sculptors too used wax in their works. Now, if you're anything like me, you will no doubt be amused at the thought of arms and heads suddenly falling off statues in the heat of the midday sun. However, this was a genuinely serious problem because unscrupulous builders often mix wax with their cement in the construction of buildings since wax is far less expensive than cement. Now, you don't need me to highlight the dangers of doing this, the consequences of such actions would be obvious to all. So according to some studies of ancient words, the word sincere comes from the words sine, meaning without, and kera, meaning wax. And the word sincere came to be used as a guarantee of quality, in much the same way that, the mechanic, that mechanical and electrical goods have a kite mark today. So when you purchase goods, you would say sincere, as a question in order to guarantee the quality of the goods that you were buying. Now, not all who study etymology would concur with what I've just said. The Oxford English Dictionary considers this origin unlikely, and that doesn't mean they're right just because it's Oxford. But their explanation I found equally interesting. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word sincere originates from the word sin, meaning of one type, and keres, now, when we say keres, in English we often uh, soften the C. So keres becomes seres, and it's the root word from which we get our word cereal. So sin seres well, means of one grain. Now, when I heard that, I instantly thought of uh, what Jesus said. Uh, describing that he described those who follow him as either being wheat or tares. So the wheat, those who are of the one grain, the sincere, they are the genuine. So genuine love is found among those who are wheat, those who are of the one grain. They are the sincere. Now whatever the truth as to the origin of the words, the meaning we read in verse 9 is clear. Sincere love, love without hypocrisy, means it is pure and without corruption. It is genuine. It's without guile or pretense. It's the same unfeigned love that Brian described when teaching us from the book of James about the wisdom that is from above. This is a love that does not hide the cracks. It does not conceal hidden flaws or motives. It is real. It's true. It's dependable. It's fit for purpose, and it will not fail under pressure when the heat is on. Now, in the remainder of the chapter, Paul goes on to describe how this love is realised and recognised among God's people. And the first thing he makes clear in the second part of verse 9 is that genuine love is both discerning and decisive. People who have genuine love will abhor evil and cling to what is good. Now the word abhor was the word chosen by the translators of the King James, the New King James, the ESV, and the New American Standard. 
So what does this word abhor actually mean? Now, I don't know if anyone here has had the misfortune of ever having smelling salts thrust under your nose, but if you have, you'll understand its literal meaning. See, semi, uh, smelling salts will, e will cause even the semi-conscious. If you're just merely asleep, somebody puts smelling salts under your nose, you, poof, you turn away in disgust. And that, according to Paul, will be the reaction of people with genuine love to anything that is evil. But those with... But it's not just about what you turn away from, it's about what you turn to. Those with genuine love will also cling to what is good. Now, one of the problems with Bible translation is finding an English word that exactly conveys the intended meaning. Now, the word cling rightly emphasises the determination and effort involved. However, the word cling, if you think of someone clinging onto a cliff, the word cling brings with it the suggestion that the join is not that secure and likely to fail. So to emphasise the strength of the, the attachment, the word cement would have been better. However, in using the word cement, we would lose the sense of personal decisiveness and determination that was intended. Now, there is an English word, and we use it rather differently today, sadly. There is an English word that does actually convey both senses of the meaning, and that is the word cleave. It's the word used in the King James Version to translate the words of Jesus when he describes marriage between a man and a woman. They will each leave their parents and cleave to each other. Cleave, therefore, emphasises both the personal decisiveness and determination of the action and also the surety and permanency of the union. Sadly, though, we no longer use the word cleave in this sense today. In fact, we tend to use the word cleave to mean splitting apart rather than being firmly bonded together. So the one who is motivated by sincere love will turn away from evil and hold firm to what is good. Now, our understanding of this verse presupposes that we know what Paul means by the terms good and evil. What does good mean? Now, I've said on a previous occasion that today we tend to use the word good in a casual sense, meaning a little bit better than satisfactory, but not quite excellent. And as a teacher, it was the sort of comment I would write on a piece of work that was seven or eight out of ten. But that's not the meaning here. On several occasions throughout Genesis chapter one, God described what he had called into existence. He described what he had made as good. And at the end of the sixth day, he called all that he had made very good. And good, therefore, means perfect. It means just as God intended. To describe something as good, therefore, means that it is of divine quality. So what then does evil mean? And this is where it gets difficult. And if you don't follow the next little bit, just hold on to the kind of summarising statement I'll give in a, in, a, in a few minutes' time. You see, no one would deny the existence of evil. It's real. However, it's not a physical substance. It has no physical form. Evil can be thought of as existing in much the same way that cold and dark exist. You see, cold is the consequence of either a lack of heat or its complete absence. And if you know how our fridge works, a fridge doesn't work, the cool part of the fridge doesn't work by pumping cold in, it works by taking out heat. 
And dark is the consequence of the absence of light. If we wanted to make this room dark, we don't add darkness in. You cannot add darkness. What you do is you remove the light source or stop light getting in. So dark and, light, dark and cold owe their existence to light and heat. Light and heat can exist without dark and cold, but the reverse is not true. Now, we need to think of evil in a similar way. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is where good should be, but isn't. Good can exist without evil, but evil is only possible because of the existence of good. Now, good means just as God intended. It means what ought to be. It has an intended order and purpose. Evil is therefore what ought not to be. It's the violation of an intended order and purpose, or an intended order whose purpose is not achieved. And if you didn't understand any of that, simply stated, evil is any thought or action that is contrary to the will of God. And that is why the Bible plays such emphasis on, on knowing and understanding the will of God. This is why the inner transformation Paul described at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2 the inner transformation can only be brought about by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. Paul stated, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. What was the purpose he gave? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. So the inner transformation is in order that we can discern the will of God. You see, it's only that as the consequence of genuine love that someone can truly pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To honestly pray this reveals a desire to know the will of God with a view to it being carried out. And this is why Paul's prayer for fellow Christians was often that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, therefore, means to turn away in disgust from anything that is not in the will of God and to hold firmly to all that is. As Paul states at the end of chapter 14, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, the second aspect of genuine love that Paul goes on to describe is manifest in the way believers relate to each other within the body. He writes, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Notice the term brotherly love. Paul is using the language of family. And as Christians, we need to understand that we have been adopted into God's family and therefore fellow believers are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are therefore to regard other members of the body in the same way that we would uh, the closest members of our family. For we are family. And Paul instructs us to be kindly affectionate. Now this will be outwardly evident, firstly to the recipient of that kindness, secondly to the other members of the body, and also as a witness to those outside the body. As Jesus said in John's Gospel, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. As members of God's family, the manner in which we treat each other will therefore be characterised by acts of kindness, compassion, 
by being helpful and considerate, being mindful of each other's needs and eager to please our brothers and sisters in a way that honours the Lord. Now this is only possible where there's genuine fellowship. It can only happen as we spend time together. Relationships like this cannot properly grow and develop if we only see each other once a week during a Sunday service. Relationships of this kind require time and effort to become established. And this is why the importance of fellowship has been stressed and encouraged time and again from this pulpit. It's only through the experience of spending time together that thorough knowledge of another person is possible. It's only then that relationships will develop to the point where we genuinely delight to see our brothers and sisters blessed, succeed and grow in their walk with the Lord. It's only then that we can be a real source of encouragement and support for the spiritual and the physical well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now in the second part of verse 10, Paul adds, in honour giving preference to one another. Now, in honour giving preference means being willing to give up your place for your brother. It's being willing to take second or even last place. As Jesus said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Now, I need to add some qualification here. See, in practical terms, someone has to go first. You've no doubt heard the old joke, what is the slowest thing on four legs? Well, it's two Christians trying to go through a narrow door. <laughs> Imagine what it would be like on those wonderful occasions where we share a meal together after, uh, after a celebration service if no one went first. We'd simply sit there for hours watching all the lovely food go off. So we have to be practical about this. Somebody has to go first. However, even on those occasions in which we do go first, there's a way of going first in which we can still honour and give preference to. We can go first in such a way that we show appropriate and due consideration for those who come after us. Those whose love is genuine will understand that in caring for and serving people in this way, that they're really serving the Lord. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus said, The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? To which Jesus replied, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did, uh, as much as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So loving people in this way requires time, effort and energy. So Paul goes on to instruct us that people who love without hypocrisy will not be lagging in diligence. Now diligent people not only work hard, but they also take considerable care to ensure that what they are doing is complete and done to the very best of their ability. And they do so with a fervent spirit. Now, to do something with a fervent spirit means that you have such a desire to serve that you can barely contain it. The willingness to serve is almost bursting out of you. Those whose love is sincere are zealous in their service because they know they are serving the Lord whom they dearly love. And although diligence means working hard, it does not seem like hard work to those who are doing so. See, work tends to feel like hard work when you don't really want to do it. 
Hard work never feels like a burden to those who are fervent and zealous. In fact, you only tend to notice that you've been working hard when you take time to rest. Working diligently in the way Paul describes means you rest well and sleep soundly. And this is a blessing that God wants for his people because it's good for us. Now in verse 12, Paul continues to describe genuine love being outworked in those who are rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now did you notice that in each of these that Paul is describing, um, they're ongoing actions. In fact, not just the three mentioned in verse 12, but indeed all the actions throughout chapter 12. You see, the Christian life is one of continuous, ongoing activity. And here Paul goes on to describe that those with genuine love have an ongoing hope for the future that is a cause for for rejoicing. People in whom the Holy Spirit dwells realise that the blessings they have received in the present are a foretaste of a greater blessing in the future. What we experience now is merely the first fruits of a a full harvest that is still to be realised. And they look forward to, with certainty, to a time when God will wipe every tear from their eyes. For there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. Now this is the hope that enables us to endure tribulation in the present. Although we have received great blessing, we understand that at present we still live in a fallen world in which our ability to love and serve may be restricted, inhibited or even prevented through things such as illness, impediment or some other ill. Yet we can rejoice in the sure knowledge that in the future we will no longer be limited in our opportunity and our ability to love and serve our Lord and his people. Future hope is one of the ways that God enables us to endure tribulation in the present. And it's interesting that this future hope, written in the book of Revelation, was revealed to the Apostle John at a time when the church was enduring the most almost unimaginable persecution. And it is this future hope that enables God's people to stand firm. Remember, sincere love is without wax. Under tribulation... Cracks that are not properly cemented will fail. In the heat of tribulation, wax melts and the vessel falls apart. Those with sincere love endure under pressure when the heat is on. And they will draw strength as they continue steadfastly in prayer. Now I'm sure many of you will remember about a year ago, a young man, a young evangelist, American evangelist called Ryan Schiavo, He came and he preached to us and the main question that he put to us is how do you spend your time? Now given that Paul has just written about continuing steadfastly in prayer, I think it's appropriate to follow up that question here to ask how do we spend our time in prayer? Are we steadfast in prayer as Paul describes? See, our prayer life will be indicative of how sincere our love really is. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, the first thing he taught them was to begin, Our Father. See, prayer begins in the context of a loving family relationship in which we know God as Father. And notice he did not say, My Father, but 
our Father. And our means that the one who is praying will be equally concerned to ask for his brothers and sisters what he would desire for himself. Now, does that describe your prayer life? Does that describe mine? I'm not asking this to beat anyone over the head, but I feel that it's appropriate to honestly appraise the sincerity of our love for the Lord and for each other. Do we genuinely delight in seeing our brothers and sisters being blessed and growing in the ways of the Lord? Do we genuinely seek to encourage their spiritual well-being? Then if so, shouldn't it be evident in our prayers? Who do you pray for? Do you know what to pray for that person? You see, we can only really do this if we have genuine fellowship in which we spend time with, with each other and really get to know each other well. It's only then that we truly understand each other's needs. It's only then that we will really know how to be an encouragement to each other, how to build each other up. Are we aware of the other's needs? Do we give thanks when those needs are met? Do we give thanks when a brother and sister or, or sister receives a clean bill of health from the doctor? Do we give thanks for a crisis avoided or a problem solved? And do we know how the Lord wants us to pray for that person? Now one of the things that Thomas taught us is that we should be prepared to be part of the solution when we pray for another in need. So it's interesting in verse 13 that Paul continues by saying, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Are we aware of the needs of our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to meet those needs with the time, the resources and the abilities that the Lord has given us? Are we willing to go out of our way to help them? Are our homes available to our brothers and sisters? Are our homes a place of welcome? When we welcome people into our homes, it takes time and effort to ensure that they're in an appropriate condition to accommodate, feed and have fellowship with them. And although this involves hard work, it's not a chore because in so doing, we are serving the Lord and expressing our love for him. Now, the Bible is an honest book. It never glosses over the reality of the failings of God's people. Remember, Paul's primary focus in this chapter is the internal affairs of the church. And in verse 14, he writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, reading this in context, I believe that he is primarily referring to people within the church who profess to be Christians at this point. See, the Bible does not disguise the fact that within the body there will be difficult people and that there is a way of lovingly dealing with them. I'm reminded of the often recited poem, To dwell above with saints I love, my, that would be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, well, that's another story. Now, Paul gives the instructions as to what to do and equally importantly, what not to do with such people. And Paul says that we are to deal with difficult, the way that we deal with difficult people is to bless them and not to curse them. And to curse someone means to verbally abuse them. It means to stir up trouble for them through gossip or to condemn them with words. And we are never to do this. Remember, rather we are to bless them. We are to seek what is good for them. 
Now this does not mean we condone what they have done or what they are doing. To bless in these circumstances means to give honest appraisal to. It means identifying the problem with a view to working out the solution. Our desire is to seek their blessing and not to write them off. And in such matters we take our lead from Jesus who would bring issues of sin to the surface with a view of dealing with it so that it no longer remained a problem. The woman at the well is a particularly well-known example. And dealing with issues, uh, dealing with these issues requires very careful discernment through prayer. And we need to ask ourselves the question, is it my place to deal with this? Is this what the Lord wants me to do? And in most cases, such matters will need to be dealt with by those with leadership responsibilities. In verse 15, Paul returns to the theme of intimate family relationships within the body. He writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now this involves dying to self if we are to reach this level of intimacy with our brothers and sisters. See, selfish people cannot cope with the success of others. Rather, their brother's achievements are perceived as a threat and reinforce their own sense of insecurity. And any congratulation offered is done grudgingly through gritted teeth. Only by dying to self can you celebrate the success of others and be genuinely pleased when things go well for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this is equally true when our brothers and sisters endure hard times too. See, some selfish people appoint themselves to counselling roles they are not equipped for and rather than being a genuine help and support to those going through a hard time, end up unloading their own problems onto the, one, onto the ones they're supposed to be helping. Genuine love shares in the lives of others in the body in such a way that their successes become our successes. Their celebration is our celebration. Their loss is our loss. Their cause of weeping is our cause of weeping. And their hardship is ours too. Thoughtfulness is the next, next aspect of genuine love that Paul considers. Be of the same mind towards one another. That is, be in one accord, live in harmony. Are our minds set on agreement and unity? Not at any cost, but in the truth of the gospel that unites us. You see, agape love means to have a consistent act of the will towards another's lasting good. Is this evident in our thoughts, prayers and actions on behalf of our brothers and sisters? You see, when we are genuinely of the same mind, relationships can strengthen and grow because we develop a confident trust that our brothers and sisters feel the same way about us. And when we become increasingly confident that our brothers and sisters generally want what is for our lasting good, Division within the body becomes far less likely and it also serves to expose those who are not genuinely of the same mind. In this chapter, Paul has given many positive instructions as to how healthy relationships can be encouraged to grow and to flourish. He now goes on to give us some do-nots. He tells them, to actively avoid doing those things which make the establishment of good relationships difficult and cause divisions. 
Now I think we would all agree that it's really difficult to form a meaningful relationship with an over-opinionated know-all. So Paul tells them not to set their mind on high things and not to be wise in your own eyes. Don't pretend to know all the answers, but rather be willing to search for them. Be prepared to get alongside people with a view to helping them find them. And he tells them to associate with the humble. Again, the Bible is a very honest book. It does not tell us to pretend that distinctions between people do not exist. It recognises that there are people of high position and people of low, that there are kings as well as paupers. There are rich people and people of more humble circumstance. They are educated and there are uneducated. The Bible recognises that distinctions between people exist. However, Paul instructs us not to allow these distinctions to influence how we love people. You see, our willingness to love, care for, pray for, show hospitality to and serve will not take notice of these distinctions. We are to be equally willing to love and serve all, regardless of perceived status or background. For all people, regardless of social status or ethnicity, are made in the image of God. All people are made to reflect and bear the image of God. And remember, these are people Christ died for. Christ died for the sin of all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now just to clarify what I meant by saying that the Bible does not teach us to pretend that distinctions between people do not exist. Let me once again remind you that Paul wrote to prevent a separation between believers of Jewish and Gentile background. And nowhere does he tell them to pretend that this distinction does not exist. Rather, as God willing, we shall later see in chapter 14, he tells them to be mindful of this distinction and to be sensitive to the consequential cultural differences so that they do not become a cause of division. Now the last four verses of the chapter are given over to to dealing with matters concerning the way we respond to those who have deliberately wronged or injured us. Let's just read them. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Clearly, these statements follow on from what Paul wrote in verse 14. However, in verse 14, the context suggests his primary focus was to do with matters within the body. However, as stated earlier, from verse 17 onwards, Paul's focus of attention has now clearly been extended to relationships outside the body as well as within it. Have regard for good. If possible, live peaceably with all men, not just those inside the body. 
Now the clear message that Paul gives in these verses is that there is no place for the personal settling of scores in the life of the Christian. Now some may argue, doesn't that contradict with what is taught in the Old Testament? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well people who raise such an argument have clearly never read these things for themselves. Now the Old Testament does on at least three occasions state an eye for an eye, etc. It does so in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus and also in the book of Deuteronomy. But in each time there are specific circumstances in which this statement is made. One involves injury to a pregnant woman. One involves injury to a neighbour. And the third involves giving false evidence in courts. Now in every case the instruction given is never a licence for personal vengeance. Rather, it is setting the limit on punishment and retribution that those with legal and judicial authority can impose in a given circumstance so that in the godly society that the nation of Israel was intended to be, the punishment could always be seen to fit the crime. So there's no contradiction here. The people of God have never been given license for personal vengeance. And it's always been incumbent upon them to leave matters of vengeance in the hands of God to deal with either through the authorities that he has instituted, both within and outside the body, or in his own way and in his own time for his own purposes. See, it's worth remembering at this point that the execution of our Lord Jesus Christ was unjust in legal terms. Three times he was declared innocent at his trial and yet he was still put to death under the authority of Pontius Pilate. However, God had a higher purpose. And he used this situation to make possible the salvation of mankind through the forgiveness of sins. Now this does not mean that we are to do nothing. There is a positive injunction given by Paul to those whose love is sincere. And that is to be an overcomer. They will not allow themselves to be overcome by the evil that has befallen them. Rather they will take positive steps to overcome it with good at least as far as the circumstances of the situation allow. The positive actions they are to take involve feeding their hungry enemies or giving them a drink when they are thirsty. In other words, as far as possible, the believer is exhorted to meet the obvious needs of those who have done or intend to do evil to them. Now this is not to condone what they are doing, this is not about brushing things under the carpet and allowing them to get away with it. No, this is a positive action with an intended purpose. When quoting the book of Proverbs, Paul speaks of heaping coals of fire on their heads. This is a sure sign that a person has come to repentance. So Paul is instructing believers to, as far as the circumstances allow, to take positive steps to bring that person to repentance. And it's in this way they are to overcome evil with good. And this applies equally to the way we deal with people outside the church as well as those within it. So in addressing the issue that potentially could have led to the division between Jewish and Gentile believers in the church at Rome, Paul has, in chapter 12, given them a picture of what a church should be like. He has described to them the ideal to which they should aspire. Where God is working in the hearts of his people, that body of people should be characterised by decisiveness and discernment 
with regard to the will of God and it should be evident in their devotion to prayer. It should be evidence in their thoughtful and considerate conduct towards each other. It should be seen in their generosity, hospitality and the desire to form intimate relationships in which they are truly devoted to each other as family. And as a family, you should see that their overriding concern is to, as far as possible, be at peace with each other and is seen, this will be seen in their determination to resolve difficult situations, bringing people to repentance rather than writing them off, particularly uh, with uh, difficult individuals or groups. Their faith in God will be evident in their lives as they fully trust him to order the events of their lives, leaving no room for personal vengeance or thought of revenge. Now you might be justifiably thinking that you've never seen or experienced this perfectly in any church that you've been to. In all likelihood you would be right. You see, we are all a work in progress. We're all given different measures of faith all at different stages in maturity. However, although it is highly unlikely you will see this perfectly, where God's Spirit truly indwells the hearts of his people, you will see these things growing and becoming increasingly evident in the lives of his people. The church is made up of disciples, people who are in training, people being trained in righteousness. So wherever God's spirit indwells the hearts of his people, it will be evidenced by the transformation that Paul has described here. Wherever the spirit of God is present, because love must be sincere. May God bless you all.